0: Hi, friends, and welcome back to Nate Talks to his friends about Jesus. Aight. Today, we're going to finish up our letter from an unknown author to an unknown people, but still so good it becomes scripture. And we're talking about Hebrews 7 through 13. Now, last time the author of Hebrews was arguing that Jesus is just straight up the best, saying that he is way better than angels. Now, in this section, he continues that argument about Jesus' superiority, but this time comparing him with Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a solid citizen. We call Jesus' priesthood power after Melchizedek, just so we don't say Jesus' name too much. So, the, the fact that Melchizedek can be seen as a placeholder for the Son of God, well, that should tell you something. So, the author says, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and the king of Salem means king of peace. And it goes on in chapter 7, verse 4. Just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. So we are talking about the model king priest right here. And if you see that, like the model Messiah right here. Listen, Even though Melchizedek was amazing, the system he was operating under didn't work. The author goes on to say, For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So you try and scrape through through obedience and it just doesn't function. But Jesus gives you a different way that you can get closer to God, a more effective way. Jesus became the guarantor of a better covenant. Not just you grinding and earning it, but something better. Because Jesus lives forever. He has permanent priesthood. Melchizedek died, but Jesus is still alive. His power is still with him. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. No days off, no vacations. Always, always, always there for us. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. This is why Jesus is amazing. He is a high priest. But the best high priest you can imagine, the high priest that will always save you and will always be there for you. And because he is permanent, the author argues in chapter 9, verse 11, that Christ become a high priest of good things to come. That Jesus Christ is the high priest not only of your past, not only of your present, but of your future. Tell me you don't love that phrase. I'm telling you, this phrase changed my life. Way, way, way back in the day, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland gave a talk on this line. When he gave the talk, I was on my mission in Brazil in a beautiful little town called Floriano. At the time, it was like 12 hours away by bus from the mission home, the furthest you can get from the mission home. It had some of the most beautiful sunsets I have ever seen in my life. And there was one branch in the town. And I had just got made senior companion, and I was feeling totally and completely inadequate. Uh, like, we, <laughs> we, we had these people, we invited to church, and they didn't come back, and then ghosted us just that week, and we we're struggling to get enough appointments, and I was just like, dude, I'm failing here. The, the weight of what it was expected just seems so big. I wish I could go back to my younger self and just say, bro... Dude, chill out. But I don't know if you can ever get to that perspective without passing through the pain first. I'm not sure. Anyway, I had a rough week. I was sad. Um, And it was a preparation day. My wonderful mother had ran upstairs during conference at her house, pushed record on the KSL radio broadcast of conference to a cassette tape. And I was sitting on my bed as my little off-brand Walkman played over tinny speakers. And I heard Elder Holland say this as I sat on my bed. My declaration is that this is precisely what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us, especially in times of need. There is help. There is happiness. There really is a light at the end of the tunnel. It is the light of the world, the bright and morning star, the light that is endless, that can never be darkened. It is the very Son of God himself. Forgive me for a personal conclusion, Elder Holland says, which does not represent the terrible burden so many of you carry, but it is meant to be encouraging. Thirty years ago last month, a little family set out to cross the United States to attend graduate school. No money, an old car, Every earthly possession they owned packed into less than half the space of the smallest U-Haul trailer available. Bidding their apprehensive parents farewell, they drove exactly 34 miles up the highway, at which point their beleaguered car erupted. Pulling off the freeway onto a frontage road, the young father surveyed the steam, matched it with his own, then left his trusting wife and two innocent children, the youngest just three months old, to wait in the car while he walked the three miles or so to the southern Utah metropolis of Canaryville. Population then, I suppose, 65. Some water was secured at the edge of town and a very kind citizen offered to drive back to the stranded family. The car was attended to and slowly, very slowly, driven back to St. George for inspection, The U-Haul trailer and all. After more than two hours of checking and rechecking, no immediate problem could be detected. So once again, the journey was begun. In exactly the same amount of elapsed time, at exactly the same location on the highway, with exactly the same pyrotechnics from under the hood, the car exploded again. It could not have been 15 feet from the earlier collapse, probably not even 5 feet from it. Obviously, the most precise laws of automotive physics were at work. Now feeling more foolish than angry, the chagrined young father once more left his trusting loved ones and started the long walk for help once again. This, man, the, this time, the man providing water said, either you or that fellow who looks just like you ought to get a new radiator for that car. Old oh, man humor. For the second time, that kind neighbor offered a lift back to the same automobile and its anxious little occupants. He didn't know whether to laugh or to cry at the plight of the young family. How far you come? He said, 34 miles, I answered. How much farther do you have to go? 2,600 miles, I said. Well, you might make that trip and your wife and those two little kitties might make that trip, but none of you going to make that trip in this car. He proved to be prophetic on all counts. Now, just two weeks ago this weekend... I drove by that exact spot where the freeway turnoff leads to a frontage road. Just three miles or so west of Caneraville, Utah. The same beautiful and loyal wife, my dearest friend, and greatest supporter for all these years was curled up asleep in the seat beside me. The two children in the story and the little brother who later joined them have long since grown up and served missions, married perfectly and are now raising children of their own. The automobile we were driving at this time was modest but very pleasant and very safe. In fact, except for me and my lovely Pat situated so peacefully at my side, nothing of the moment 2 weeks earlier, n- nothing of the moment 2 weeks ago was even remotely like the distressing circumstances of 3 decades earlier. Yet in my mind's eye for just an instant I thought perhaps I saw on that side road an old car with a devoted young wife and two little children making the best of a bad situation there. Just ahead of them, I imagined that I saw a young fellow walking towards Canarville. With plenty of distance still ahead of him, his shoulders seemed to be slumping a little, the weight of a young father's fear evident in his pace. In the scriptural phrase, his hands did seem to hang down In that imaginary instance, I couldn't help calling out to him Don't give up, boy. Don't you quit. You keep walking. You keep trying. There is help and happiness ahead, a lot of it, 30 years of it now and still counting. You keep your chin up. It will be all right in the end. Trust God and believe in the good things to come. I testify that God lives, that He is our eternal Father, that He loves each of us with a love divine. I testify that Jesus Christ is His only begotten Son in the flesh, having triumphed in the world that is an heir of eternity, a joint heir with God, and now stands at the right hand of His Father. I testify that this is the true church and that they sustain us in our hour of need, and they always will, even if we cannot recognize that intervention. Some blessings come soon. Some come late, and some don't come till heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Christ, they come. Of that I personally attest. I thank my Father in heaven for his goodness, past, present, and future. And I do so in the name of his beloved Son, and most generous high priest, even Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. End quote. Oh, amen. Amen. By the end of that talk, I had tears on my face. I was wiping them off my cheeks so nobody would see. But I, I felt like he was speaking straight to me, right out of that tinny Walkman. It honestly changed my life. It flooded me with hope. And now that more than twenty years since that moment has gone by for me, I would love to tell that same nineteen, twenty-year-old kid. There's so many good things are still to come. So many good things. I cannot tell you how much I believe in the high priest of good things to come. It's a real thing. He is a God of miracles. And it's not about what he can do, it's about us trusting in what he can do. Now in addition I want to let you know that there are actually two versions of the letter to the Hebrews, both of them of ancient origin. In one of the letters, it says that Jesus is the high priest of good things to come. The other letter says Christ came as high priest of good things that are now already here. Or put another way, when the Messiah appeared as the high priest of good things that are already happening. Now, this is not an either-or debate. Both these teachings are true and can be found throughout Bible translations. We, we already talked about how Jesus Christ is the high priest of good things to come. And he is the high priest of good things that are already here and are happening now. Jesus has redeemed the future. It's happened. It's already true. You can trust that. Trust your future in him. But he is redeeming your present as we speak. And he has already redeemed your past. I don't know which one of these three you need to to put your trust in. The future, the present, or the past. But your heart knows. The spirit knows. The Holy Ghost is probably telling you right now, hey, he's talking about blank. The future, the past, the present. He's saying, You need to trust that Jesus has your future. You need to trust that Jesus has already redeemed your past. You need to trust that he is redeeming your current situation. I don't know, whatever it is the Holy Ghost says, I want you to do the the mental work to trust that redemption. Let God tell you he has already redeemed you from your past sins. Let him show you how he is redeeming your present moment. Let his promise of a brighter future sink in deep in your soul. Now, some of you may hesitate to believe that Christ has redeemed you. But the book of Hebrews is forceful on this point. In chapter 9, verse 15, it says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. He has died as a ransom to set them free from their sins. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself to appear in God's presence. He picks up this in in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have the great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and have our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he Who promised is faithful. That's just beautiful. This is a message for you. And the invitation is for you to hold unswervingly to the hope of Jesus Christ. Whether it be the hope of Jesus Christ to redeem your past, your present, or your future. Hold unswervingly to that hope because Jesus, who promised that, is faithful. Now, how do we do this? How do, how do we trust uh, that we have been redeemed when our sins seem so hurtful and damaging to not only ourselves but others and we feel so broken? How do I trust when my, my life right now is a hot mess? How, how do I trust that my future will be okay when I don't really see a path forward? Well, the author of the book of Hebrews says, Faith or trust is confidence in what we hope for. And it's an assurance about what we do not see yet. In other words, faith is exactly because you can't see it. That's what makes it faith. You trust even though all your evidence points elsewhere. It's an experiment. It's a risk. It's a jump. And spoiler alert, It works, but you've got to send it. This is no halfway attempt. Send it. And when you do, you will know. This action uh, of just jumping into the unknown is what every ancient person you see in scripture did. They had confidence that Jesus had redeemed them in all their frailties and imperfections, and they went for it. And then they had that assurance. We have so many models of this in Hebrews 11. You have by faith. We understand that the universe was formed at God's command. That's interesting. That God's creation operates under his (laughs) leaps, his trust, right? So that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. More stories. By faith... Abel brought God a better offering, like just doing what God asks. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Well, that, that's cool. By faith, Noah built an ark. There was no rain in the sky when he started building a boat on dry land. But by faith, Noah built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham went and made his home in the promised land. He was a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs to the same promise. They did not receive the land during their lifetime. They sojourned as foreigners, as immigrants in a strange place, trusting God and his promise. By faith, Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob, even though he was the younger son, and Isaac knew it. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons, Again, kind of weird because it's out of the patriarchal order, but he did it trusting the Spirit, trusting God. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction for the burial of his bones. Meaning he he was buried in the promised land, land they still did not own, land that looked to be like no chance that they would ever have, but he still trusted. By faith, Moses' parents hid him up for three months after he was born. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, he left Egypt. By faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, he put blood on the door so the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch Israel. By faith, the people of Moses passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Because they blew trumpets. Trumpets, man. (laughs) That's sending it. That's trust. By faith, the prostitute Rahab welcomed spies. No reason to believe that they would take over the city and the great walls, but she trusted. By faith, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. Through faith, administered justice. Through faith, gained what was promised. By faith, Daniel shut the mouth of lions. By faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego quenched the fury of flames. By faith, David and Jonathan's weakness was turned to strength, and they became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. By faith, women received back their dead, raised to life again. All those are exciting, but what about those who by faith faced torture? What about those who by faith faced jeers and flogging, chains and imprisonment? Those who by faith were put to death by stoning or sawed in two or who were killed? What about those who by faith lived destitute and were persecuted and mistreated? That's a different view of faith. But all of those at the root had the same thing as the author. They are trusting that God had planned something better for us. So how do we make this sort of faith operable in us, in our lives? Chapter 12, verse 1, let us throw off everything that hinders us. Let us throw off the sins that easily entangle us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked for us. How do we throw off sins? How do we get rid of things that trip us up and make us so afraid? How do we keep going when it's hard? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. When we know it's not about us, when we know it's already taken care of, it liberates us to do what needs to be done and to trust. It helps us endure hardship and discipline. It helps us know that God is just when he hard things come he's just treating you like a father treats a child what what child is not disciplined by their father if you're not disciplined then you're not legitimate children you're not true sons and daughters at all god's going to send you through hard times and you got to trust that he knows what he's doing so whatever you're facing the question is the same will you trust no hardship or discipline seems pleasant at the time it seems painful But later on, you know how it goes. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by that hardship. And so knowing this, make every effort to just let go of those things that trip you up and seek to live in peace with everyone. You don't have to control everybody's actions. You don't have to make sure everybody likes you. You are free through Christ to be good, to love them, to love one another as brothers and sisters, to show hospitality to strangers, to remember those who are in prison, to honor your, your husband or your wife, to be content with what you have. That's it. The author of the Hebrews is saying the secret sauce is to be where you are at right now and to choose in your present situation to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to trust that he has taken care of your past, your present, and your future, and then to go out in this state of freedom and do something good within your power. It's the simple secret sauce of life. Let let me close with one story, true story. It's a young woman named Elizabeth and her coming to, to see how Jesus has redeemed her past, her present, and her future. So Elizabeth says, part of me wanted so much to hide what was going on inside of me. I didn't want anybody to look at me and be able to guess that I was struggling with anything. I was just a normal kid. I loved sports. I always wanted to be a writer. I enjoyed plays because I felt like I could be somebody else for a minute, and it helped me forget what was going on in my life. I came across pornography when I was 11 years old. At first it felt like curiosity, and then it became out of control. I, I couldn't not look anymore. I didn't want to tell anybody because I thought they'd look at me differently. A church teacher started out by saying, now I know none of you girls look at pornography. I know you are all good girls, but I have to give this lesson about pornography. I just felt another level of shame. I just say, like, you just told every girl there that they're not good if they've looked at pornography. I was angry all the time. I was angry at my family. They didn't know why. My sister said many times, why don't you want to spend time with us? I could never tell her. Sometimes I felt like they didn't really know me, and if they did, they wouldn't love me. It just hit me that this addiction felt more important to me than they were. So I know I just had to, to stop. I did a lot of research on how I could stop, but it, it was all geared toward men. I didn't know how to make make it relate to me as a woman just made me feel more alone. Am I the only woman struggling with this? I got to a point where I felt like I was hopeless beyond repair. I remember the first time I knelt in the most sincere prayer where I actually believed that Christ could help me. I remember praying and just setting small goals and praying for what I needed right then. And it was the first time that I felt that God was listening to me and that He was real and He would help me. Feeling hope at all was a miracle because it takes so much of your life and you feel so out of control and helpless that, every, that having any moment of hope, that there can be an end to it, makes all the difference in the world. The healing process began simply. It was just literally one day at a time until I was thinking about it less, I was acting on it less, until it was just gone. I had no more desire to do it ever again. Addiction knows no bounds. It could affect anybody, man or woman. Christ and his saving grace also knows no bounds and can heal any heart and lift any person out of the depths of despair. They feel that they're in. Trust in the high priest of good things to come. Trust in the high priest of good things that are now already here. And trust in the high priest of good things that are happening right now. Trust.